episode 374 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Step Joe and Johnson. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we're about to express do not reflect the opinions of our institutions, our clients, our friends, our family, or even our pets. Joining me today, Jamil Jaffer, who's the founder and executive director of the National Security Institute, uh, and a hundred other things, including uh, working at IronNet, which just had its IPO and uh, listing on the stock exchange. Is that right, Jamil? That is exactly right. Uh, Stuart, thanks for mentioning that. Uh, We uh, went through the uh, SPAC process with a company called LGL Systems Acquisition Corporation, and we are now listed on the New York Stock Exchange as IRNT. Congratulations. Uh, And Dmitry Alperovich, who has been through all of that and more and has now taken uh, his interests and his funds to the nonprofit Silverado Policy Accelerator, where he is funding some of the most interesting research on cyber issues uh, in the country. Dmitry, great to have you. Thanks for having me back. All right. And David Chris, the founder of Culper Partners, LLC, uh, and a, an advisor to uh, multiple government agencies. Uh, David, good to have you. Thanks. Great to be here. Okay. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host and chief provocateur for today's program, which we're going to jump right into. Jamil, it was hard to ignore in the news that uh, Apple is claiming that it has won the fight with Epic over whether Epic can be part of the Apple store without having to pay the 30% that Apple charges. And most people would say, yeah, Apple did win. They certainly beat the the antitrust case. But there's a footnote that makes me wonder whether this is all to the good for Apple. Uh, so can you give us a little feel for where this case came from and uh, what the footnote? Yeah, so the the uh, the core issue here in this case is whether Apple can permit or can require their their applications in the App Store to route their payments through uh, Apple's methodology. And Epic's claim was that's not appropriate, that Apple had a monopoly, this App Store marketplace or in the relevant marketplaces they defined it. And uh, the judge actually found that uh, they failed to make case that Apple had a monopoly in what it defined as the relevant marketplace, the mobile gaming marketplace. And at the end of the day, she determined, Judge Rogers determined that in fact, those claims as a result failed. Now, Epic did gain some, did appear, appears to have gained some ground. One of the arguments they made is the question about whether they could direct people to other forms of payment. And in that respect, uh, the judge said that there may be some room to for Apple to be required to, to provide or to permit a different methodology, as long as it's not uh, in a particular method, in a particular way to get to allow these companies to use other payment methods. Epic got a sort of a small victory, but the larger effort it lost in a big way, in part because of the market definition that the judge engaged in. Epic has uh, appealed. And and so this will go up to the Ninth Circuit and we will see what happens next. But as, yeah, far, as, sounds, as far as right now. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Sounds like the, the, the pretty plausibly the market that the judge found was for basically the Google Store and the Apple Store together for games say, is the, model, uh, the market that the judge saw. And apart from lock into particular phone systems, that's not an implausible conclusion. What I thought was interesting is the Epic One was based on California state law, unfair competition. And it could be important for a lot of companies which might say, hey, if you want to buy something, go here and just provide a link 
or even a button that says, yes, I want to complete this transaction, take me to my uh, uh, shopping cart and bill me. Uh, those are things that could have an impact on Apple's ability to control all of the revenue from its app. I think that's certainly true. The The interesting piece about this, uh, I think for Apple is an important victory, is that the judge recognized that there are valid security fears, right, about, about opening up iOS to competitors. And that's been Apple's sort of biggest claim about why, in fact, it's important to keep this ecosystem and not permit sideloading of apps and the like is because it's about security. And, and to be fair uh, to Apple, the if you look at the difference between the Apple iOS store and the Android app store, I think a lot of us are happier to be living in the iOS world. Again, not free from issues, but certainly a, while a much more locked down in that sense ecosystem, a much more, I think people are much more comfortable loading apps from the App Store, from the Apple App Store than they are from the Android App Store. I think Dimitri has a thought. Dimitri? Right. Just to add to that, the interesting thing is that there's no question that Apple has invested a lot in security and trying to shut down jailbreakers very rapidly after a new exploit comes out, putting in a lot of countermeasures in place to make it very difficult to do, although not impossible. And a lot of it, quite frankly, has been driven not by necessarily security concerns, but by the concerns of protecting this incredible revenue stream that they're collecting from the app stores and preventing people from doing third-party app stores easily and undercutting their way to collect revenue. So it'll be interesting to see what the impacts on security will be if there's a more open ecosystem and some of those incentives will go away for Apple. Yeah, I fear that this is like a lot of Apple stuff. It's it's 10% better. The Apple product is 10% better on security and a bunch of other things and will cost you 40% more. So the question is, are you getting value in terms of better security for money or could you get the same better security for less? I don't think we're going to answer that. And I completely agree with you. There is more security and they do invest more in security at, at Apple than, than Google's store suggests. Stuart, right. there's, there's, yeah. one other, there's one other piece I think we, we have to mention, which I think is why Epic is appealing. Having lost even a larger claim is that they that the court actually did find that Epic has to pay damages, right? That they violated, yeah. they knowingly violated uh, the contract with Apple. And that's obviously a huge win for Apple. Now, you could imagine Apple doing a cross appeal, right, of this uh, narrower yeah. uh, issue. But it is worth knowing that Apple is making changes to some of its app store policies overseas also in very specific ways. And so it may be that Apple's willing to take some of these changes and at least adopt some aspect of that to help move the ball down the road in this space. So it'll be an interesting thing to see how uh, that particular piece of it plays out. But but I do think that, that Epic is not thrilled with the way this thing has played out. Although I will say on the PR front, Epic did get a lot of a lot of attention from uh, from kids like mine who who were very unhappy that uh, Fortnite was no longer in the App Store. <laughs> okay, it's like old times. They went away for the summer vacation and they're back. Revel is back. Groove is back. Groove is even a tweeting or there are tweets about whether Biden should be worried because he's going to be a target from from. Groove. Dimitri, I think you were one of the people who said they're not gone. They're they're enjoying all the money they made down at the Black Sea, uh, and they'll be back as soon as they've spent. Stuart, I'm shocked that gambling is going on here and the ransomware has not gone away. Of course, this was going to continue. I was one of the folks that made that prediction that Russia is not cracking down on anyone, that this is a temporary sort of going low, spending some money on the Black Sea perhaps, and they'll come back with a vengeance, rebranded as it appears to be the case with Groove and some of the newly appearing ransomware crews. The interesting thing is how belligerent that they've become. They're poking their finger at Biden specifically, naming him. 
they're saying that in, in Groove's case that their goal is to raise $30 million. So it would be easier for everyone to just chip in and uh, send them the money now <laughs> without having them launch uh, ransomware attacks or really interesting strategy. But it shows you, I think, the strategy has not worked. Russia has not cracked down on any of these groups in part because I don't think that we have threatened severe right. sanctions yeah. as I've recommended on them. And it strikes me that the administration just hopes that the problem is going to go away. And of course, it won't go away and it's going to get a lot worse. And it's long past time that we get serious about this or we're going to see more attacks. Just last month, no one paid a lot of attention to it because we we're all focused on Afghanistan and rightly. But four major hospital systems were hit by ransomware and some of them were turning away patients. Didn't even make national news because of everything else that's going on. But eventually this is going to get bad enough where uh, not just in the media, but the real impact to, to average Americans is going to be so bad that the political pressure will be massive on this administration to start doing something. And I would think that they start looking at, at this problem seriously now, because at the, at the core of the problem, it's a geopolitical issue. It is yeah. all about confronting Russia. We're not going to defend ourselves out of this problem. I applaud the administration for a lot of the security things that they've done for, with executive order in May and other things. But let's be honest, none of those things are going to stop ransomware attacks on schools, on hospitals, on our even critical infrastructure. So we have to start looking at this as how do we stop, particularly Vladimir Putin, but even other countries from providing a safe haven to these groups. And we just haven't been serious about it. Yeah. So there, there are two studies that I thought were interesting. First, now we're seeing reports that a lot of students' personal records stolen from schools are being released online. That's terrible. And then a really interesting study that looked at patient fatalities in hospitals that were under cyber ransomware attack and those that were not, and also during times when they were and were not under attack. And deaths are higher when there's a ransomware attack. So there are people who have died from ransomware. We just don't know their names. All right. Jamil, that was an unhappy discussion. There's an interesting fight brewing as WhatsApp has decided to let users encrypt chat backups. So uh, WhatsApp is famously end-to-end -end encrypted, but if you wanted to back up your chat in the cloud, it wasn't encrypted, uh, they, partly because that's a hard technical problem. But WhatsApp has apparently decided that they know how to encrypt all of the chat backups. And that has given the UK government an excuse to, to attack Facebook again. What's with the WhatsApp additional encryption? And are they going to end up having to eat it because of the UK's very aggressive risk. You know, in a lot of ways, Stuart, this is like uh, the situation we saw with Apple and iCloud. We know that early on in the post-Snowden environment, I uh, decided to encrypt uh, data on iPhones and the like, but weren't encrypting at the same level or the same level of context. The the in transit, as well as some of the stored communications in, in iCloud. And so Facebook is making a similar decision now. They've, they've always encrypted end to end the in transit communications to the backups. By the way, not unbeknownst to a lot of us, we're not encrypted. I think everyone likes having their WhatsApp chats backed up. So unlike Signal, when you reset your phone, if you haven't gone and done the done the thing with the uh, with the uh, QR code, you end up with an empty with, an, with a null set of messages. Uh, so they ever likes the WhatsApp backups, and uh, and little did we know, or little did we focus, uh, Dimitri, I'm sure knew that it wasn't encrypted. And now they're fixing that problem, but of course, the same problem that governments have had with the end-to-end -end encryption approach that Apple adopted, that WhatsApp adopted, that Signal has built into its base, uh, both for in-transit as well as stored communications, is the same, which is government uh, agencies here in the U.S. and in England and elsewhere 
are saying, look, we need access to data, lawful access to data, encrypted or not. We need the ability to access it in the event where we have a lawful order, right, under under the relevant jurisdiction's law. Let's say there's child pornography in it. Let's say there's terrorist plotting. More often than not, you've heard, I mean, not more often than not, very often you've heard of the FBI director, including most recently FBI director Chris Ray, say, look, we see terrorists, right, begin communications with people in the United States and elsewhere on unencrypted chats, and then they move them to encrypted channels of communication, whether that's Signal, WhatsApp, whatever else, in order to protect those communications. We don't have insight into what's going on there. For all we know, there's significant plotting. It's just as much true in the child porn pornography context as it is the terrorism context and remains a massive issue. And so as I've argued for years, we've got to find some sort of common ground on this issue. It's easy for uh, companies who are saying to consumers, look, we need to protect your privacy. Encryption is the way to do that. And we're going we're gonna to do that at all costs and regardless of government access or not. Government legitimately saying we've got to protect our citizens' privacy and their security. And that requires us to have lawful access to communications we're permitted under the laws. We have to figure out how to square that circle. There are solutions to this. There are technical solutions that can be applied. You often hear technologists saying there's no way to solve this. If you permit lawful access to encryption, you'll break the internet and commerce will end and the world will come to a crashing halt. That is just false. There are ways to do this, but we've got to, the companies and, and industry have got to come and, and government to come together. And part of that means we have to bring the consumer base along. And that's a challenge, I think, for industry today. Yeah, it's striking that the most significant statistic that I've seen in the last several months is that Facebook reported hundreds of millions of child pornography, child sexual abuse material to the NCMEC, to the authority that collects that. And Apple reported 250. And that's because... Apple didn't have a mechanism for looking for that stuff. Facebook did, but as soon as they start encrypting backups, if they start encrypting message messaging apps, that enormous burden on them of reporting all that stuff and the value to law enforcement of finding that and tracking those people goes away. Well, worth noting that recently Apple Apple did make a change, right, to some of their ability to find some of this stuff, which caused huge, a huge outcry in the technology community uh, and the public about, oh my God, they'll be reading all of our iMessages and the world's coming to an end. And God forbid, never mind, these are all people who have Gmail accounts who know for a fact that Google is reading their emails because <laughs> right. they get pushed ads. That doesn't seem to be a problem for them. But God forbid my iMessages for the purposes of child pornography and lawful investigations are, are you know, passed on. And only, by the way, only when you see it multiple times, and there's large, I mean, it, it, the whole thing is unbelievable. So Apple, you know, is taking steps to address some of this. I think Facebook is now putting itself into Apple's camp and trying to figure out now how, how they're going to have to undo this. And so this is going to continue to be an issue. I think Dimitri, though, had a thought. And sorry, yeah. Dimitri, I cut you off. Apologies. No, no worries. I, I think the jury is still out with regards to the Facebook implementing end-to-end encryption of whether that's really going to impact their ability to report child pornography uh, cases because they claim they that most of their... It's metadata? Yeah, they claim that most, I think even as much as 99% is what I've heard from them, of their investigations do not actually involve looking at content. It's looking at someone who contacts a dozen or so underage kids, and those types of signals are very strong. And they claim yeah. that they'll be able to continue to report with high degree of fidelity. But I do agree that we it's a long time all of us have been part of these crypto war debates for 30 years now. And it's a long time for us to start getting specific. I think there's a huge difference between data at rest and data in motion. I think I'm very sympathetic to the technology industry's arguments that to break data in motion, you fundamentally break security. Data at rest, I think, is very different. And access to a device, for example, that law enforcement has in their hands, there are ways 
probably to get into that device with specialized tools and what have you that don't limit the security of most other devices. We need to get to specifics. And unfortunately, the government has not been forthcoming and actually talking about compromises that they're willing to make. They want everything or nothing, which of course results in them getting absolutely nothing. It strikes me that if they would come forward and say, you know what, we appreciate that there are certain things we should not be breaking encryption on because it un- uh, undercuts the security of the entire internet. And there are other things where we have tremendous intelligence value that we need for criminal investigations or national security investigations and the impacts to overall security very low. We need to start having those specific conversations. So the law enforcement got a win in a surprising place this week. Proton Mail, which everybody has assumed is the most secure possible mechanism for criminals and everybody else to communicate with because it, they didn't keep logs, they had end-to-end encryption most of the time, they were protected by Swiss law. Turns out Swiss law cuts both ways. Dimitri, what was the the Proton Mail episode? This is another case of where I'm shocked that people are shocked. Because frankly, <laughs> Proton Mail has been very transparent on this. They have a huge transparency report that they put out. I take it that most of the people that are protesting their actions have not read it, but they were very clear that they are under Swiss jurisdiction and they will abide by court orders from Swiss courts. They don't log anything by default, but of course a a court can force them to start logging metadata. Now, they are not able in any way, they claim, and I I believe them, to look at content. So they're only able to record things like IP addresses, not actually appear into email traffic, even with a court order. But in this particular case, you had a Fred, French activist who I believe was breaking into some people's homes. So it wasn't I, just- I think uh, more likely they were, ta- they were squatters. Uh, there was a movement of squatters, which if you're looking for something that will offend Swiss law and sense of propriety, interferences with private property are it. <laughs> that's right. And the French authorities have asked for help from the Swiss authorities. The Swiss have court order to put mail, which they have to abide by and they did, and they started logging IP addresses. Now, to be clear, they were fully transparent that they did it. They were fully transparent beforehand that this is something they would have to do. So I'm just struck that people are outraged and shocked. All of this was clear as plain sight for many years. There's one thing that that I I was struck by is there've been a lot of claims that they were required by Swiss law to notify people when they did this. And ProtonMail did notify the target but eight months after the logging, the investigation had begun. And I think that's when we discovered that the Swiss courts could also order you not to notify people. Uh, Not a surprise if you're from law enforcement, that's what law enforcement does. But I think a lot of people were surprised that that also was part of the adherence to Swiss law that ProtonMail was obliged to engage in. Again, every law enforcement agency in the world would want ability to not let their target know that they're being watched, particularly in the cases of national security, but even in criminal investigations that are still early on and they're still trying to figure out what's going on. Of course, they don't want to tip off the subject. This is something that I think you'd be hard pressed to find a jurisdiction where you don't have that. So David, China looks to me like they have a serious case of GRU envy. The GRU is getting all this credit for interfering with the uh, U.S. elections and dividing Americans by creating fake groups. And now the Chinese have been caught doing something very... That is what the findings are from uh, Mandiant and Google doing some research. They are, as the news story in the journal says, they're copying the Kremlin's playbook. They are using fake social media accounts 
to create real world turnout or at least to attempt to create real world real turnout at protests. As you might expect, the efforts here are focused on PRC interests, which largely have to do with COVID related issues as well as race related issues. In Hong Kong, they're trying to undermine democracy, but maybe not directly attacking the foundations of American democracy here, again, just because they're pursuing their own interests. And guys like you, Stuart, are going to want to call this racial profiling because they are looking at Asian Americans and Chinese Americans, ethnic Chinese. This is obviously something that they have done historically in the espionage space where the IC has published that they target uh, for recruitment in that in that area. I've always thought that this was kind of the, the most racial worldview you could find. They believe that if you are racially Chinese, you owe an obligation to your motherland. And the fact that you've, you're three generations in the United States doesn't matter at all. It's a very odd and very racial view of the world, uh, but it's going to, because it overlaps with what in some cases are legitimate and in other cases hyperbolic claims that the FBI is engaged in racial targeting when it does its counterespionage investigations. This puts the Chinese in a position of putting forward a, a line that a lot of Asian groups in the United States also put forward. Uh, it's going to be a real challenge for the government and, frankly, for those groups, how close they want to get to repeating Chinese propaganda. Yep. And as you say, it's definitely, it looks like we're defining deviancy down in terms of online tools uh, used by uh, nation state adversaries to try to create real world effects or even kinetic effects potentially. And here, as I say, they're really focused on trying to get people to turn out to protest against the theory that the COVID-19 came out of the Wuhan lab, as well as a few other things. I, I suspect we'll be seeing more and more of this since I don't think it's that hard to do. The in interesting aspect of this is, according to the story, it hasn't really worked. Broadly speaking, in all of this internet manipulation can be seen as a kind of a virus. And the question is whether using law and culture and politics and increased sophistication and education and awareness, we can develop the kinds of antibodies that would make these tools less effective deployed in any artificial way. The fact that there hasn't apparently been a lot of turnout in real world demonstrations from these efforts might be a sign of some hope that maybe we're getting a little smarter. I, I never want to bet on yeah. us getting a little smarter, but I do want to hold out hope that we could. I, I kind of wonder why we allow countries that won't let Twitter or Facebook operate in their territory, why we allow them to nonetheless have a presence uh, uh, on Twitter and Facebook. It's not clear to me that that's the right answer. We might be better off uh, with a restriction that says that you're either speaking to the world or you're not. And if you've decided that you're not going to let a particular social media operate in your territory, we're just going to tell you then we don't want you on that in our territory. Okay, uh, this is my favorite story of the uh, of the episode, but for one that David will do later, which is uh, uh, the a report from the UK 
saying that they think GDPR, the the infamous privacy regulation from Europe, is going to interfere with their ability to build an AI industry because, or to utilize AI effectively, because GDPR, in a weird, slightly Luddite pronouncement, said you can't allow automated decision-making to affect a, a, a decision that actually has human consequences. A, and Jamil, that was always a weird little provision in GDPR. And now we have a pretty prestigious UK task force saying, thank God for Brexit, let's get rid of that provision from our privacy. This is a great example of how well-intentioned plans by a regulatory state or regulatory body or lawmaking body can go horribly wrong. This happens all the time. This is not the first time we've seen problems with GDPR. GDPR has had significant uh, impact on cybersecurity capabilities uh, with its restrictions on on the communication and usage of, of IP addresses and the like. Well, GDPR combined with the uh, ridiculous rulings of the European Court of Justice in multiple cases, not to mention the national security implications of GDPR, the economic implications of GDPR on the US-EU relationship, and soon to be, right, the internal US relationships as they apply the same logic that they've applied to the US to uh, internal national security efforts of GDPR member countries, uh, or EU member countries. This is not surprising at all, in my mind. I actually think this provision, uh, while itself may be somewhat unique, it is indicative of a larger problem, which is this concern that folks have about about the use of uh, machines and systems to do work that humans would do. You see the same sort of Luddite-like reaction to automated cars. And in fact, the reality is in, in nine cases out of 10, automation, artificial intelligence, the like actually makes you safer. It protects your privacy better. It actually is a significant boon for those who care about privacy and safety. And yet, because this gut instinct, this sort of instinctual reaction of, oh, if a machine is doing something a human could, it might do it faster and more aggressively and might do it in a way that, that harms me, that sort of Luddite-like reaction leads us to create laws and regulations that ultimately are problematic. And the reality, one other piece of this, and it's worth noting, Stuart, this happens a lot even in the surveillance. When you think about people often complain about metadata and based investigations, the, the first initial Snowden leak, people complain about national security letters and the like. The actual the reality is that the more you can use metadata, right, the less likely you are you're gonna need to go to content data. And so it's actually yeah. more privacy protective than than privacy harming. But to Dimitri's point uh, earlier, by the way, I, I want to come back to this about metadata and being a substitute for content. Let's be very clear. There is not one law enforcement or intelligent person on the planet who would tell you that metadata is even near a substitute for content. You have to have content. We've heard all these, all these stories about digital contrails and how it's the new era of digital surveillance and the like. The fact of the matter is, unless you have content, you can't do surveillance effectively. That is the reality. Metadata can help early on. The same is true of cybersecurity, by the way. Dimitri knows it. Metadata can help, but it is not a substitute when you need content. And that's just a fact of the matter. Dimitri? I don't disagree with Jamil that when you can have content, of course you'd want content. You always want as much information as possible. The question is, can metadata be enough? And as someone who has built AI algorithms based on metadata, I can tell you in many cases, it can give you to a high degree of certainty based just on metadata. And Jamil, I don't know if you can talk about this, but in the case of our drone strike program, the signature strikes that we've used without even knowing who we're striking, it's all based on metadata, right? Sometimes there have, of course, been mistakes and, and so forth that have been tragic, but we make decisions based on metadata all the time because we don't live in a perfect world and we can't wait for perfect information and complete information to make a decision. 
Yeah, but Mike Hayden, who was the DCI, famously said, yeah, sometimes we kill people based on metadata. Yeah, to the extent to we, we want to talk about drone strikes, I think that signature strikes oftentimes are, are mistaken for a couple of things. While we may use metadata to identify targets for surveillance or, or the other further action, in the case of signature strikes in particular, what we're actually talking about there is not necessarily digital signatures, although sometimes it might involve that. It really actually is oftentimes pattern of life behavior and the like. It's really, that's the quote unquote signature we're talking about signature strikes more often than not. Any 10, 10 uh, military aged males going from point A to point B, of course, We've seen how that type of signature strike can go horribly wrong. Just this last uh, few days, we've seen a, a extensive report in the New York Times about what appears to be the last last alleged drone strike in the in in Afghanistan. Again, we don't know the the details on that, but if what the New York Times is reporting is accurate, and they have a lot of data and photographs and, and security camera footage and the like to back it up, it may de- it may be a demonstration of a case where a signature strike does have challenges. Certainly. All right, let's keep moving along on this. Uh, Brazil's uh, President Bolsonaro has taken a leaf from Florida's and Texas's uh, playbook and banned the social networks from from removing posts during the election period. He's in a tough election. He's not looking good. He's had a bitter fight with at least one justice of the Supreme Court who seems to have basically launched a campaign against him, investigating him. Uh, David, is there anything different from this fight? He's been called the Trump of the tropics, so it's not completely surprising that he would follow Trump in picking a fight with uh, social media or that they would pick a fight with him. Uh, What can we learn from what Brazil's doing? So I look at this through as much as I'm tempted by your intro through a different lens. This reminds me a little bit of must carry rules, except just for me. And I want to compare it to the fight over cross-border data demands that were, Mm -hmm. as everybody knows, addressed by the sort of the Cloud Act. In those cross-border situations where one government was seeking information that may have been subject to the jurisdiction of another, there could be pretty severe whipsaw effects for global communications companies trying to figure out how to follow the rules because you might end up with some statutes that required production and others that blocked and forbade the production, creating this, as I say, this kind of whipsaw effect. I imagine a world now in which that whipsaw effect applies to takedowns. As Do you well. think the usual rule is if you if one state doesn't regulate something and the other does, you have to obey the regulation of the state that does, and you can't complain that there's a difference in the obligations that you have. And then the U.S. cannot tell Facebook to to take the posts down, uh, and therefore it, it seems to me that Facebook can't really complain that Bolsonaro is making them do something that violates U.S. law. It might violate their own internal policies and their view of the First Amendment. But we had a a, a Baidu defended its taking down any reference to Tiananmen Square by saying we have a First Amendment to do that. And of course, we're obliged to do it by uh, Chinese law. Isn't this more or less the same outcome? I think you are focused too much on the role of the United States in this. There are a whole bunch of countries in the world and a lot of them as you try to issue worldwide orders, including your favorites yeah. in Europe. And so I do think we are potentially, not for certain, but potentially headed for a world in which the patchwork of various countries required carry or must carry rules and takedown orders come into increasing conflict. 
Yes. And well, I don't think I don't. Do you think Bolsonaro cares whether people in Germany can read these posts? He's worried about the Brazilian electorate and applying Brazilian law to Brazilian posts and Brazilian and, subscribers. And one is, can is imagine if you start filtering the world by IP address or other proxies for location that you could have a set of territorial rules here. Yep. But I think it's also very possible to imagine. A, the incredible difficulties that may obtain in applying those kinds of rules at scale and with high fidelity because yeah. lots of things can be done so that you can watch the latest episode of Downton Abbey in the United States when it's really only available in the UK. Not that anyone that I know has ever done yeah. that. And, and also, it's not at all clear that these laws will be written with that kind of scalpel-like precision or care. I do agree right. with you as to the motivation most of the time, but I just, I see the potential for chaos ahead. Maybe it won't turn out that way. Maybe this will just be a flash in the pan. Maybe the conflicts won't really arise in practice, even if they're available in theory. But this is something that I've been worried about for a while that may reflect a certain cognitive bias. And so when I see a story like this, I just can't help but think, good Lord, are we gonna relive in the content space the same stuff we are still <laughs> trying to deal with I'm still waiting for that US-UK agreement to yep. proliferate on the data production and data access side. And if so, I think we're in for some rough sledding ahead. I think your your view, you've been worrying about this a long time, as have the companies. That was in 2006, and this is 2021. They've learned how to do some pretty sophisticated uh, parsing. They've got AI that can, can, can tell you that you're using the wrong words or you're misgendering people. <laughs> They've got a whole bunch of stuff that, that is very fine-tuned in terms of filtering content. And I, I think the idea that they can't uh, figure sure, out I just heard that GDPR says you can't use AI, so we're going to have to go back. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's a local ordinance, remember. <laughs> but I will let them know that you're very optimistic about the prospects. So uh, I'm sure that'll help make everybody feel better. Great. All right. Actually, uh, while we're talking about the Europeans and my hobby horse of flogging them, uh, there is a story that the U.S. and the EU in the most recent uh, discussions right up to the president has begun to actually talk about how to protect data transfers across the Atlantic, which are threatened by a decision of the uh, European Court of Justice. It didn't say they had made progress, although they might have. It's clear that it finally the administration, this is the second administration that had been ignoring the thing, hoping it would go away. It looks as though the Biden administration has finally decided, yes, we're going to have to do something about this. And they've put the NSC and maybe the NEC in charge. Unusual. Most of the past negotiations have been run by combination of justice and DHS. Which says to me that the the White House probably doesn't think that the interests of those agencies are sufficiently important to let them take the lead in these talks. It's good that they're finally talking because this has got to be resolved. Uh, but I would say the structure of the negotiations suggests that the U.S. is not going to be holding firm on maintaining the ability to have data across the Atlantic where it is the most important data we use to find terrorists. All right, Dimitri, uh, the, the Chinese have sent a new diplomat to Washington and he gave a speech that I would not have described as particularly diplomatic. Maybe it was not 
wolf warrior diplomacy, but I think it was, there were plenty of red meat lines in there that must have made him popular in Beijing, but raised questions about exactly how much diplomacy he's going to get done in the United States. Yeah, and to be clear, he, he gave the speech in front of a very friendly audience of the U.S. China Relations Board, which I assume does not have a lot of China hawks on that board. <clears throat> but nevertheless, he, he talked about the things that we, we expect to see from China these days, that you can't stop China's rise, that we have to cooperate with China. He made a few interesting points that I thought were accurate, that China is not the Soviet Union and expecting it to collapse like the Soviet Union deal did is full. He talked also about the fact that, and we've seen this message from a number of Chinese officials, which I actually buy, that the current Biden administration policy of compete and cooperate with China is not gonna work. You can't punch someone in the face and then ask to sit down and negotiate with them. No one, and certainly not the Chinese, are gonna respond to that. So you really have to pick one or the other of how you're gonna deal with them, but having it both ways is just not gonna. Now, the one thing that is very hypocritical in the Chinese position, and the ambassador talked about it as well, is that they hate this word reciprocity. So on one hand, they object anytime we talk about issues we have with Chinese laws, like the, the laws that they use to take over Hong Kong, obviously the laws that they use to suppress Uyghurs in concentration camps in Xinjiang. But on the other hand, and they object as calling this interference in Chinese internal affairs. But in this particular speech, the Chinese ambassador talked about how he finds the, the Innovation and Competition Act of 2021 that is being considered in Congress highly objectionable and detrimental to the state of U.S.-China relations, when the reality is mo most of that law is about investment domestically and, and making sure that we're not dependent on China. So I find it completely outrageous that he would interfere in our domestic affairs by talking about our proposed legislation. I, I believe, and I think Jamil will agree with me, that we need on every single issue, like the one you mentioned earlier, Stuart, uh, with social media, but everything else, market access issues, uh, trade barriers, even economic espionage, demand reciprocity. If they're doing yeah. something to us, we need to be doing the exact same thing to them. Yeah, well, reciprocity hurts them a lot because of the way they have run their industrial policy. And it's not understandable that they are really shocked to discover that the U.S. had dis had found the courage to say, no, we're going to do the same thing to you. And there are plenty more things that uh, that could happen. Uh, I think one of the reasons they said no IPOs for Chinese companies in Western uh, stock exchanges is they were pretty sure that the U.S. was going to make it harder and harder to do Chinese IPOs on American exchanges. Uh, and they wanted to get in first. No, I think that's exactly right. And look, when you intern over a million people in your population in what amount to uh, modern-day gulags or concentration camps, you can't be surprised when people criticize your internal policies. Uh, I think that at the end of the day, the United States really uh, needs to be laser-focused on the fact that China is, if not already, a peer competitor, a near-peer competitor in a variety of realms, and that their goal is to box us out of a number of these spaces. And regardless whether they think these policies are problematic or the like, I think Dimitri is exactly right to say that it's fascinating that they are so concerned about this this legislation that focuses on building domestic capability in America because they know it. We're a competitor. Yeah. They don't want us finding that space to be independent of their semiconductor chips, independent of them on, on reliance for pharmaceuticals and PPE and the like. They like the fact that we're reliant because it puts us at their behest. And I think it actually is very revealing. But in fact, I think one of the really interesting things that's going on here is that the Chinese have told us for a long time that this is where they're headed. Now, the problem is we haven't been paying attention in part because 
we don't have a lot of native Chinese speakers in the United States that are in the policy sphere. And so we're not reading Chinese policy documents. They've been talking about this for decades. We just have not done a good job of really identifying that. And I think that's a capability gap that we in the United States have. Partly, we benefit from the fact that English is the lingua franca of the world. And the reality is that if we don't watch out, it's going to be Chinese very soon. I don't agree with you on that, Jamal. I mean, we have plenty of linguists here. There have been plenty of people that have been raising alarm bells. It's just that for the last 20 years, we've been focused on the war on terrorism. We've been focused on the Middle East. And we haven't had the capacity and the time to spend worrying about. Put Dimitri down on, on a fa- being a fan of the pivot. Yeah, I, I think I, yeah. I, that's the, a remarkably bipartisan position. I agree with you. They have written down a lot, partly because they didn't think we were reading it, and partly because it's a very big country. And if they want to get everybody on board with a policy, they have to talk about it I, publicly, and we get to read it. Uh, so I, I don't think they're going to stop writing about this. I, I want to move on to this next story because this is my favorite and David, uh, I'm glad, volunteered to talk about it. It's it's the next step after smartwatches, as as I understand it, David, I, that our health is going to be tracked by smart toilets. I want the listening audience to get the straight poop on this story so that there's no misunderstandings. This is the internet of things just really going everywhere. I think There is a lot of information, public health information and other kinds of information that can be obtained from sewage and waste. And you can see the epidemiologists and maybe some of the other folks looking for good intel here just getting very excited. But from the user's perspective, I just am not sure this thing is going to really take off. You have toilet bowls that are outfitted with get this cameras and trained in a machine learning algorithm to analyze waste as it goes by the camera using a diagnostic chart. And in order to differentiate between and among users, the article says, and here I am just reporting, that there can be a conventional fingerprint scan when you flush the toilet so that uh, but also or the opposite of face recognition let's call it that (laughs) (laughs) the opposite of facial recognition is another identification method that apparently can be used in case people try to spoof maybe they cut off somebody's finger and try to trick the toilet I, i i i don't know anyway i i personally don't i don't know if the from the end user perspective this is going to be a very appealing thing to have in your home but but you can see the bleeding edge the cutting edge here of of potential internet of things data collection for public health and other purposes there's valuable information for sure in that and samuel peeps if you remember samuel peeps he was he famously reported on his stool every day in his diary there are people who and we're much the better for it i i know that some very important public health work has been done by analyzing sewers and looking for, say, the return of diseases like polio and the like. That's in the sewage mains. This is much more individuated here. I'm personally not ready to buy this product, but Stuart, if you buy it and use it, I look forward to hear your experience. My fear is that the the woke engineers of uh, Silicon Valley will decide, why don't we also uh, enforce the rules that it's a it's a microaggression to leave the toilet seat up so that we basically if Baker does that three times in a row he's just not going to be able to use the toilet <laughs> I, I I 
I was wondering how you would get there with this story, <laughs> but good for you. You fulfilled your... <laughs> Cancel culture comes through. I think I actually, I, I, I said on Twitter that I just wanted to make sure that my smart toilet wasn't tweeting and that if you wanted to do the opposite of uh, a face recognition, you didn't really need those cameras because Twitter identifies all the the people that you should be worried about. Anyway, all right, uh, uh, the last, uh, let's get serious. Dimitri, the Juniper breach, which has been attributed to a, uh, a flaw in, a, in an encryption system that outsiders have blamed on NSA, was back in the news, and you actually looked into it. What conclusions did you come to from that, from looking at that? So this is an old story, of course. It goes back to 2006 and 2007 when this new uh, cryptographic standard, Dual EC, was approved by NIST, and we now know at the behest of the NSA. That algorithm, which generates random number, random numbers, which you then feed in encryption algorithms, it's a critical capability to have for encryption to work. There, there's not a lot of controversy around the algorithm itself. The algorithm uh, is slow. It, ha it has some weaknesses, but it's uh, more or less secure. But the main issue that people have had since those early days has been that the algorithm requires two parameters to be supplied into that algorithm. It's an elliptic curve algorithm, so you have to generate two elliptic curve points called P and Q in order for it to function. And, and the only way you can assure that the algorithm will be secure is if you generate those points randomly. So what happened in that standard we now know is that NSA asked NIST to include their own uh, parameters from their own P and Q and refused to say how they were generated, whether they were generated randomly. And since the early days, people were very concerned because if those points were not generated randomly, then NSA or anyone else that knows how those points were generated could essentially break the algorithm, predict future outputs, and as a result, break further encryption. So what happened is that the standard got adopted and then several companies, including RSA and Juniper, implemented that standard. RSA used the PNQ that were in the standard from NSA, and there was a lot of controversy post the Snowden disclosures about that. But the Juniper case was much more interesting because they did not use those PNQs. They claim that they self-generated their own values, which we know that they don't match to the standard. So we know that at least they didn't use the standard ones. And as a result, they, they said that this is secure. However, what we don't know is how they generated it and whether they generate it themselves or not. So when they've come out publicly and said, we're not vulnerable to the situation, they did not disclose the two things that are critical. One, how did you generate PNQ? Did you do it randomly or did anyone else supply it to you? And that's all they really need to do is to come forward and say, we did it randomly, we did it ourselves, here's the code that we used. For, for people to say this was perfectly secure, there was no backdoor in this code. The reason why this has come up again after many years is that Bloomberg has just put out a story saying that DOD pressured Juniper or requested from them to include this algorithm in their code. Very suspicious that they did, but did not use the standard PNQs and have not come forward and, and talked about which P's and Q's they, they've actually generated. So we can put the whole thing to bed. Juniper can, can do that tomorrow if they just come forward and explain how they generate those points and provide the code for doing well, so, which can be validated they by know, anyone. Right? This is years ago now, and finding the finding the engineers who worked on this uh, may, and, and what they did, and finding their notes, may turn out to be a, a lot of work uh, that may not pay off. All right. 
Let's close it up there. That's just about an hour. Uh, uh, thanks to Dimitri. Thanks to Jamil. Thanks to David for joining us. Uh, if you have a chance to send us comments, cyberlawpodcast at stepto.com. Leave us a rating. We need a, a rating and we'll read your comments when you, when you rate us. Uh, thanks to the Wasserman Sound Design for our uh, music. This has been episode 374 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Mm-hmm.